0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
1: Welcome and thank you for joining us today. This is an hour dedicated to understanding a little more about ourselves, our beliefs, and how we approach enlightenment. Indeed, an hour devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we think as we do. An hour for the open-minded, Willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, last week our show was a repeat because yours truly lost his voice. Bronchitis, they say. Two weeks ago, our show was all about aging gracefully, and our guest was television icon Linda Evans. Linda shared herself openly, providing valuable insight into the many choices and decisions we make as we age. Celestial B. wrote, Very uplifting show. I thought Linda was refreshing and generous with her candidness and wisdom. Lisa wrote, Linda is so humble with her sharing. She is just inside-out beauty. Kimberly wrote, Love the show today. Love the chat room today. Thank you for the inspiring people and subjects. Brian wrote, I wonder how much wisdom and knowledge we lose in this country because older citizens are fighting to stay out of the home and fearing the day they will not be completely self-sufficient rather than enjoying the knowledge that they are cherished, respected and supported as they continue to make journeys around the sun. Connie wrote, great show, Dr. Taylor. I was one of the listeners who was too busy listening to call. You and Linda Evans were wonderful. Now, three weeks ago, our show featured Major Ed Dames, and we discussed remote viewing in his Killshot movie. Dames' appearance stirred up quite a controversy. Among the many letters we received was this one. Quote, in regards to your last guest on your Hay House radio show and his remote viewing of solar flares in 2013, looks like we could have viewed NASA's site for the same info as well as a similar happening in 1859. Researchers have known about the solar cycle since the mid-1800s, quote. Now, <clears throat> in checking the information at the NASA site, I did find that solar cycle 24 will peak, they say, in May 2013, with a below average number of sunspots. The site states, even a below average cycle is capable of producing severe space weather. The great geomagnetic storm of 1859, for instance, occurred during a solar cycle of about the same size we're predicting for 2013. Now, when I checked the information from 1859, this is what I found. On September 1st to the 2nd, 1859, the largest recorded geomagnetic storm occurred. Excuse me. I'll have that voice back here in just a second. Aurora were seen around the world, even over the Caribbean. Those over the Rocky Mountains were so bright that their glow awoke gold miners, who began preparing breakfast because they thought it was morning. People who happened to be awake in the northeastern U.S. could read a newspaper by the Aurora's light. Telegraph systems all over Europe and North America failed, in some cases, shocking telegraph operators. Telegraph pylons threw sparks and telegraph papers spontaneously caught fire. Some telegraph systems continued to send and receive messages despite having been disconnected from their power supplies. Okay, so we may well have a super light show in store for us and some interruptions of power and communication and perhaps even major weather disturbances that cause some damage. Now, for those of you who have expressed worry about this prediction, I stand by my invitation to bring Dames back to the show in 2014 and discuss why his prediction for a barbecued earth in 2013 simply did not happen. Okay, Karen wrote, Thank you, Eldon. I listen to you on Hey House and also keep updated on Facebook. You certainly are enlightening. The one thing I wish I could get is your books on CD. I work from home, and I'm so busy, the only time I get to read is when I listen to a book on CD while working. Love your work. Well, Hay House has offered that to his Karen. so I guess I'll have to saddle up to the mic and begin recording the books. Dee Dee wrote, Eldon, I wanted to say thank you for your magnificent CDs on performance anxiety and overcoming fear of rejection. These have been instrumental in my success performing in front of large crowds, like the New York Yankees and NBA Thunder. Thank you. Well, I mean, wow, great job, Dee, Dee. I mean, great job. And as you know, I absolutely love your work. We'll have you on the show, not too distant future, and uh, you can sing your way into the entree. This is a woman that does lectures, and she is an entertainer. Uh, she she sings the lecture. I I, I don't want to spoil it. You just want to be sure and catch Dee Dee when, when she's scheduled on the show. When is she coming, Ravinder? Oh, now you've caught me. I have to go look that one up real quickly. She's coming on real soon, but November, December, anyway, right for the end yeah. of the year. Yeah, well, that's okay. You don't need to look it up. <laughs> Sorry. All right, coming soon. You know, you want to Actually, watch? Actually, it's November thirteenth. November thirteenth. <laughs> All right, Brenda wrote, "I'm watching your video right now from I can do it in DC. Awesome, thank you so much." Doug wrote, thank you for providing those of us who are on the path with road signs that we see, feel, and hear. Well, thank you, Doug, for your feedback, and it's my pleasure, for I relate to needing just those things myself. Marilyn wrote, I heard you on Pamela Osley's radio program from her website. Yes, 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 resonated through me continuously. Marvelous accomplishments, thank you for sharing, and here's to shouting it out from all of us. Well, thank you, Marilyn, and if any of you would like to know about my appearances other than here on Hay House Radio, please check the schedule and or the archives at my website, eldentaylor.com. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your email to at eldentaylor.com, that's E-L-D-O-N, or by joining me on Facebook, We can't get all of your letters on the air, but they do impact our programming. And once again, I thank you for your feedback and continued support. Now to today's show. I'm excited about this show. The Pyramids and the Pentagon. The government's top secret pursuit of mystical relics, ancient astronauts, and lost civilizations. Sound like an Indiana Jones story? I mean, how much truth can there really be? ...to scenarios of this kind? Well, our guest today may surprise you. It seems there is much more truth than most would expect. The book, The Pyramids and the Pentagon, by Nick Redfern, is a detailed study of how and why government agencies have, for decades, taken a clandestine interest in numerous religious puzzles. Focusing on classified work of the U.S. government, The Pyramids and the Pentagon invites you to take a wild ride into a fog-shrouded past... Our guest, Nick Redfern, works full-time as an author, lecturer, and journalist. He writes about a wide range of unsolved mysteries. His previous books include Keep Out, The Real Men in Black, The NASA Conspiracies, Contact Keys, and Memoirs of a Monster Hunter. Nick has appeared on numerous radio and television shows and is an active advocate of official disclosure. He has worked to uncover thousands of pages of previously classified Royal Air Force Air Ministry and Ministry of Defence files on UFOs dating from the Second World War. Nick has been with us before, so let's just get the man in here. Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Mr. Nick Redfern.
0: Hey, Alden, how's it going?
1: It's going great, sir. I've been I, I've been really looking forward to this show since our last visit. I, I basically said uh, to the producers, you know, we need to get this guy and bring him on the show. on on a regular basis, at least once a quarter, because you're just a wealth of knowledge. But before we jump into your book, you're always working on something new and different. What have you been working on since your last visit to the show?
0: Um, I'm working on a couple of books on my other big interest, which is cryptozoology, which is the study of unknown animals like Bigfoot, Lake Monsters, the Chupacabra, and um, that's sort of my other big area of interest beyond sort of UFOs and conspiracies. So, uh, I'm working on a couple of those books for for next year right now.
1: You know, just for the benefit of those people that uh, haven't, uh, you know, weren't with us when you were with us before uh, in the last show, Mm -hmm. please explain what it is that uh, caught your fancy that made these things so interesting to you.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, actually, it goes back to my father. He was in the British Royal Air Force and worked on radar. And he was involved in um, a couple of UFO incidents where the radar personnel tracked these fast-moving objects flying over the uh, English Channel and the North Sea um, in between the British coastline and Scandinavia. And because this was the height of the Cold War, you know, the first thought was, it's got to be the Russians launching a sneak attack. But um, that didn't turn out to be the case. The um, fighter pilots were scrambled from a nearby Air Force base and tried to intercept them and pilots reported seeing these strange lights and silvery saucer-shaped craft, and but couldn't get close to it. It was almost like the UFOs are playing sort of a game of cat and mouse with them. And this went on for, for several days, and um, everybody involved from the ground crew, radar people, pilots, was told not to talk about it. And my dad didn't tell me about it till I was uh, like about 12 or 13, and um, that sort of got me Interested, and then after I finished school, I began working on a music magazine back in England, and then so got a background in journalism. And then I decided, why not try and you know combine the two—the writing with the interest in in weird stuff, I guess. So that's what that's kind of what kicked it all off.
1: See, and I and I don't think it's weird. I think it's the really interesting stuff that, as a child, you just absolutely fantasized about.
0: well, yeah, when I fixated, say weird, it, I even, but I then mean, you grow you
1: know, just, up and and you find yourself having to go out and and do all these other things, and and you you know you grew up and went out and decided you were going to investigate it. I think that's really cool.
0: Yeah, well, thanks. I mean, I always I've always been of the opinion that you know that you got one life, so you might as well enjoy it and do what you want. <laughs> you know, and I I decided that this is what I was going to do. This is what I was going to plan. This is what the goal was going be, to be—to be a writer and write about things i enjoy and you know and not have to be stuck in a nine-to-five thing wearing a suit and tie which i i hate doing
1: (laughs) so you know know, one of these days we're going to sit down we'll have coffee tea or what have you and and spend an afternoon but you know tell us about your new book the pyramids and the pentagon what what is this all about i mean how do pyramids and pentagons relate
0: well that's actually a very good question (laughs) um I mean, over the years, I'm I'm sure like a lot of people who are interested in mysteries and unexplained phenomena, um, had a deep interest in the whole ancient astronaut scenario. You know, everything from the likes of the work of Eric Von Daniken, Zacharias Sitchin, stories of Atlantis, Edgar Cayce, that kind of thing. Um, But I'd never actually, of all the sort of 20-something books I've written, I'd never written anything on ancient civilizations or ancient astronauts, anything like that at all. But the reason why I chose to do that with the new book, The Pyramids and the Pentagon, was because over time I began to get snippets of stories over the course of several years which suggested that government agencies had, had been taking an interest in things like how the pyramids were built, the story of Atlantis, um, the legend of Noah's Ark, things like this. And of course, you know, the big question is, well, why would the CIA and agencies like this even have an interest? So I began digging into them more and more. And over time, found that there was this huge backstory there, if you like, that nobody had really dug into before. And that was kind of how and why government agencies have taken an interest in ancient astronauts, mystical relics, and um, ancient civilizations, you know, like Atlantis and things like that. And eventually, you know, got enough material together where I was able to sort of write an entire book on it. And that's basically yeah. what I did. So. <laughs>
1: And it's a great book, yeah. you know. And I, I think when I first picked it up, uh, some of the obvious things, uh, the the clandestine operations, uh, you know, I, I have familiarity with. Yeah. But some of the the, the tactics that involve that were involved, such mm-hmm. as exploring uh, a religious ideology with the idea say, end times, an eschatological event, with the idea yes. that maybe we do a blue beam and, 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 well, I'm getting ahead of myself. But with the idea, as you spill out in the book so well, that you create this panic by making people believe mm. that you have an end times. Let's get into specifics. I, we'll draw that one out later. Okay. How did the CIA become interested in and involved in the 1947 discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Mm.
0: Yeah, this is a weird story. Um, goes back, as you said, to 1947 when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in a series of caves at a place called Qumran on the Dead Sea. Hence the name. Now you would imagine, and quite rightly, um, that you know this would be an issue for like, theologians, historians, archaeologists, which it certainly was. You know this large collection of Dead Sea Scrolls is now sort of famously um, on display, but. There's an interesting story that links the Dead Sea Scrolls with the CIA, and it came from a man named Miles Copeland, who was a senior operative um, in the CIA in in the 1940s onwards, when the CIA was established. And he was working out in the Middle East at the time, and he spoke about how, actually in the the city of Damascus, and he spoke about how on one particular day, this Mysterious character came into the building. He was working, His office was in the American Embassy in Damascus, and unrolled this huge parchment, uh, which looked very ancient and archaic, and had this writing on that you know that nobody could really decipher. But Copeland realised this was something of significance. Um, and whoever this mysterious character was, he said he wanted someone to decipher it, and so he chose the CIA. And how he even knew the CIA was had this clandestine office in the building. You know, that was a mystery in itself. But nevertheless, uh, Miles Copeland agreed to um, have this information and the the scroll itself actually sent for analysis to the CIA. And Copeland went public on this story when he was a very old man in the um, sort of 50, 60 years after the experience occurred. Um, And he spoke about how word got back to him that when it was deciphered by experts in ancient languages, They concluded that it was related to the book of Daniel and dealt with everything from like strange dreams to prophecies and foretelling the future and things like this. Um, What's interesting is this actually ties in with the very early years of when the CIA was doing what later would become known as remote viewing. That's to say using the the, the mind Mm -hmm. in sort of psychic warfare situations. And it seems to be the case that the CIA may actually have took some inspiration from this ancient text, if you like, and used it as like a springboard for their ESP-based research, because it dealt with things, as I said, like visions and prophecies. And it seems to be that that was the reason for why even today the CIA actually won't even acknowledge they've got that particular scroll. It's not like they say the stories are nonsense. Their official response is we can neither confirm nor deny the story, which is a sort of typical roundabout of... Way of saying it's true, but go away. You know,
1: right? And that is exactly right. You probably heard in the setup piece that a couple of weeks ago we had Major Ed Dames who headed the SRA, uh, Stanford Research Associates. Uh, so the viewers like Ingo Swan and the scientists like uh, Harold Putoff were under his command, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, <clears throat> he uh, indicated in the radio show a couple of weeks ago that his Soviet counterpart. And he have since uh, shared stories and tales, and uh, they both now teach remote viewing privately, one in Russia and one, of course, here. Uh, d- continuing with, you know, these connections, I, I just kind of want to do a an ABC. I mean, sure. c- y- tell me, how does the U.S. government, uh, or why, I should say, has the U.S. government taken so much interest in... Um, in Noah's Ark. Mm.
0: Well, this is probably the strangest, or at least one of the strangest book, uh, stories I've got in the book. It goes back to 1949, two years after the whole situation with the Dead Sea Scrolls. And American intelligence, via, actually by British intelligence, had got hold of a story that the Russians were building up a, a new military base on the border of Turkey with the with the former Soviet Union on the border somewhere. And because this was seen as a threat to the you know, Western Europe, etc. that um, a spy mission was launched where a, a U.S. spy plane took off from a base in Europe um, and with the plan to fly as close as it could to this military base and get some high-flying aerial photographs. And the guys on board the plane, they used Mount Ararat, Turkey, as like a guiding pointer to reach the base. It was basically, you know, fly over the mountain and keep going in one particular direction, and they would come to this sort of clandestine base that was being constructed. Now, Mount Ararat, of course, is where, according to the Bible, you know, Noah's Ark came to land mm-hmm. after the flood. Um, and as the guys got near the top of the mountain, the Mount Ararat is basically about 17,000 feet high. And, you know, contrary to a lot of people think that it's like a hot desert country, um, that high up, the top three or 4,000 feet are actually permanently snow and ice covered all year round. It's like the Himalayas or Everest up there. Um, and as they approached the mountain, one of the guys on board the plane reported seeing that he could see what looked like sticking out of the ice, literally like about a 600-foot-long wing-like structure, like the wing of an aircraft. And they got permission from ground personnel to swing the plane around and take some photographs of it, which is what they did. As they were turning the plane, one of the other guys on the opposing window said he could see a similar wing on a slightly adjacent face of the um, of the mountain. So they also got pictures of that, which was also described as like a a 600-foot long wing. Then they continued on with the original mission and then returned to base. Now, of course, when these pictures were analyzed, one of which actually managed to get through the Freedom of Information Act, which is in the book, um, they showed what looked like two dark-colored winged-like structures, each about 600 feet long. Now, of course, nobody back then, or even now, of course, was building aircraft with an overall wind, a wing width of, of 1,200 feet, you know, it's just not visible. Right. Um, but that's what these things look like. And, of course, these photographs became of deep interest to U.S. intelligence, not just because of the location being Mount Ararat, because, but also because they didn't actually fit the conventional description of Noah's Ark of being like a 600-foot-long wooden boat. They were They looked like wings. You know, this wasn't like the equivalent of a of a rotted old hole of a boat or anything like that. Um, and the photographs were shared by the, with the CIA, with the U.S. Air Force, the National Reconnaissance Office, and a couple of other departments, all who had a vested interest in trying to determine what this was. And again, I used the Freedom of Information Act and um, got about 70 pages of files from the CIA, which made it very clear that they'd followed this story for years in terms of actually even flying spy satellites over Turkey and getting very high-resolution photographs in the 1970s. And, and within the CIA, this became known as the Ararat Anomaly. And what's particularly interesting is that a number of these agencies, including the CIA, collected stories, uh, very often from like published books, you know, where they would photocopy them, um, where people were talking about the idea that Noah's Ark, instead of being like an ancient wooden vessel, was was like a ufo or like an alien arc actually filled with like animal dna you know in other words it was like a huge space arc that collected um specimens of animal dna from all around the world in the event that the or, or they obviously foresaw this flood coming and used this to sort of reseed the planet afterwards and now whether or not that's true the mere fact that all this material was held by these agencies suggests that's why they were looking into the mystery of what this thing was on Mount Ararat, they felt it was in simple terms like an ancient Roswell or something like that.
1: You know, and I guess that kind of begs the question too, Nick, and I, I'm going to ask you uh, uh, for a bottom line answer because we're coming up on a hard break. You, uh, you tend to see these stories like Noah's Ark as either, you know, uh, mythology represented uh, uh, by something that really happened, and or this is, you know, a biblical, the God did appear, you know, yeah. literal. Which way do you take that?
0: Well, you know, I mean, I think there's no doubt from the photographs that something is on Mount Ararat. You know, I think, I mean, religion is obviously, you know, a very controversial issue that polarizes people into different areas. My personal view... I'm mean, going to have to ask you to hold it on that. <laughs> when, get, when we
1: come back... <laughs> Your personal view is what we're going to ask for, all right? <laughs> you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment on HayHouseRadio.com, radio that goes anywhere and everywhere. Our guest today is Mr. Nick Redfern, and we're discussing his book, The Pyramids of the Pentagon. Now, if you're not already in our chat room, this is a great time to join in the conversation. We have a short film of Nick that will be shown during our break. Just go to eldentaylor.com forward slash chat. Stay tuned. You don't want to miss what's coming up after these words from some of our friends. Confusion, deception, manipulation, feeling a bit controlled,
0: lost. Learn how you can take back control of your life through proven techniques in Eldon Taylor's revised edition of Choices and Illusions. This New York Times bestseller is a guidebook to your journey to self actualization. Filled with practical, real-life solutions backed by scientific studies and guaranteed to awaken your inner genie. Get your copy today from all bookstores.
1: Have you talked to yourself lately? What does that inner voice say? Are you constantly hearing negative feedback? Ready for a change? InnerTalk, Eldon Taylor's patented subliminal technology, can do just that change your inner self-talk. Turn off the negative by replacing it with positive affirmations. Inner talk has been researched at universities such as Stanford and by governments around the world and has been proven effective at priming your self-talk. Armed with a new positive outlook, you'll find everything becomes easier. From losing weight to stop smoking, giving presentations to riding horses, learn new things to being a powerful salesperson. Choose your title for change today. Visit www innertalk.com that's i-n-n-e-r-t-a-l-k.com innertalk.com
0: unlock the power of your mind this is provocative enlightenment with eldon taylor
1: Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Nick Redfern about his great read, Pyramids in the Pentagon. But before we get back to today's show, I want to remind you to join me on Facebook as a friend or a fan. You will always know where we are and what's on next when you do. Plus, many of the announcements only happen on my Facebook pages or in my newsletter. So if you're not receiving your free copy of my newsletter, be sure to sign up for it when you visit my website. All right, let's get back to the show. Before the break, Nick, you were about to share... Your personal take on this whole matter of myth based on historical incident versus say biblical recount of of God's interaction or what Jewish people might say, Yahweh's intercourse with man.
0: Yeah, I mean my view has always been Alden that you know, when you're dealing with stories from the distant past that have been sort of translated and translated and retranslated, and they tell stories that are very literal but fantastic. You know, we have to be careful how we interpret them. And that's not meant to offend anybody, but it's just the fact that when you're dealing with something like Noah's Ark, you know, where supposedly two animals, every animal on the planet were taken on board this ship, you have to ask the question, or I do at least, how, you know, did Noah travel to every country around the world and get two of every animal, where some of them, you know, how do you get a fully grown man-eating lion and a female lion on board the Ark without getting eaten yourself? How did you then travel to the North Pole to get penguins or the South Pole to get polar bears all before the flood hits? You know, it's like, when you break it down, to me, it reads more like a distorted story of a real-life event where certain people, where there was a worldwide flood, I do believe that, and I think certain people survived it, and there may be some sort of intervention. You know, some people would say gods, some people would say ancient aliens, but I think the danger is interpreting these stories literally when they clearly have flaws in them that, you know, in terms of the, the logic of how you would get all these animals on board and how, sure. why it wouldn't sink under the weight of them all, you know.
1: Sure. Uh, since you've brought that subject up, let's just mm-hmm. jump a little bit here and and we'll come back. You know, I, I, I want to get to the pyramids. That's what I mean. but, but Oppenheimer, uh, Uh, has often been associated with uh, the idea that there were earlier civilizations that preexisted us. Indeed, I believe, you know, your book basically states uh, that he may have had some secret knowledge of localized nuclear war that was fought in India. Flesh that story out for us. Tell us what you know about these, you know, at least the ideas that are held uh, by intelligent people, including our intelligence community. I don't mean that as an oxymoron. Uh, that uh, the, the, the views that they might have regarding this, Nick.
0: Yeah, well, th- this is a very interesting story. This goes back to, um, well, Robert Oppenheimer first was, you know, the, the father, the brains behind the atomic bomb. Um, first one detonated in the New Mexico desert in July forty-five, um, just before the two main ones that were dropped on Japan, you know, which brought the Second World War to an end. The first one was basically like a test bomb; nobody really knew what effect it was going to have. You know, they just thought, "Well, oh, we got a lot of New Mexico desert; we'll just do it there and hope for the best." You know, um, yeah. but over the years, um, Oppenheimer began to sort of rue and regret um, creating the atomic bomb. He was sort of kind of like Dr. Frankenstein and the monster, you know, he kind of regretted bringing it to life, so to speak. Um, and he actually became more of a champion for peace, uh, which sort of didn't please the U.S. military. And he, that's why he lost eventually lost his top secret clearance, because there were suspicions, you know, that he, he, although worries that he would sort of derail the program or whatever. But he had a fascination that I would arguably say, bordered upon an obsession uh, with an ancient Indian text called the Mahabharata, which i mean some estimates suggest it goes back to about 8000 BC other estimates suggest that the mahabharata itself is actually based on an even older story possibly going back 30 or 40000 years which would be you know would literally rewrite the the history books you know in terms of when civilization began but that's one of the suggestions and it talks about this uh, war in northern india between two um basically warring factions. Um, now, of course, you would imagine the dawn of history. This would be a battle sort of fought on horseback with shields and bows and arrows and spears and lances, that kind of thing. But when you read it, it actually talks about the, the soldiers taking to the air in these craft that were called Vamanas, which sound, when you read the description, they sound like high-flying equivalents of today's fighter planes. And they would unleash these sort of bolts of iron Um, at the opposing cities which would be just flattened in like an instant. There would be this gigantic flash of light and this huge plume of smoke would loom into the air for miles and just hang there for weeks or days. Um, And it also talks about how the soldiers and the people of the cities in the immediate days and hours afterwards from the explosion, they'd start to fall sick. Their nails would fall out, their hair would fall out, etc., etc., and they just fall sick and die now, when you look at all this, this actually sounds eerie like you know the flash of light is like the the atomic bomb. this huge plume of smoke just just hangs and hangs there it 's kind of like the atomic mushroom cloud that everybody knows, and the hair falling out, the nails falling out, people sick and then dying after the explosion in the hours and days later sounds suspiciously like radio action excuse me, radiation and um, uh, radiation poisoning. And so, but then we have to bear in mind that this is, you know, from a text from thousands of years ago. Now, Oppenheimer actually did come to believe in the idea that we weren't the first civilization to achieve atomic power. He didn't necessarily think there was a gigantic worldwide civilization like ours, but possibly certain, in certain localized areas, you know, they may have flourished and, it tapped into something that, you know, took us years to find, but then recklessly destroyed themselves and become sort of just mythology. For example, in 1952, when he was at a seminar in Washington, D.C., he was asked about these rumors, you know, were the first three atomic bombs we exploded, the one in New Mexico and the two in Japan, the first ones? And Oppenheimer said, yes, they were. And then he paused and added, in modern times, as if he was trying to basically get a little bit of the secret out without you know, compromising his own position in terms of security. But he was actually somebody who became obsessed with the Mabaratta and the idea that, you know, there were people before us who, who destroyed themselves.
1: That's it's really interesting. You know, um, I, I think just about everybody uh, is familiar with some of these stories, but we, we put them off to to myth and legend yeah. as opposed to, Sometimes look at the, at the documents uh, like you have done and, and then attempt to explain the, the feasibility, the possibility of this taking place within the context, like you say, you know, on horseback with swords and shields. Let me ask you this. Uh, going straight to the pyramids, you know, I, I have seen all kinds of theories on how these massive stones were put in place. Um I've seen discovery shows where, you know, hundreds, thousands of men using various devices, moving stones, tried to float them uh, from the quarries and so on and so forth. Um, I think that the most popular theory is is the idea that somehow they used to, they levitated these stones into place. Is that a theory that would hold, I mean, has is, is the Pentagon looked at that?
0: Well, actually, they have, as bizarre as it sounds, and it actually goes back to the pyramids where they took some of the inspiration from. Now, if you, if you look at the Egyptian pyramids, or the very similar pyramids, but they're slightly different at least, in South America and Central America, and also ancient Rome, Greece, and Stonehenge in Britain, all of these different countries, people, and cultures have, they all have near identical legends and folklore where they all talk about the stones, these huge stones, sometimes weighing up to 80 tons, were sort of floated into place. You know, they weren't pulled by ropes, pulleys and, you know, levers or anything like that. All these cultures talk about the stones being what today we would call levitated. And what's interesting is that they all have... It sounds a bit odd when I'm going to say what I'm going to say now, but they all talk about the stones being moved to the sound of music, There are stories about magical instruments, musical instruments, being plucked like ancient guitars and the stones would raise up. But what they're actually talking about in a a distorted fashion is something the military has been secretly trying to develop for a long time, which is called acoustic levitation. And basically, it's where you have what's called uh, opposing acoustic frequencies that create what's called a resonance zone between them. And if you amplify and direct these acoustic um, frequencies, you can actually raise objects within this so-called resonant zone. And the military so far has only had success um, lifting small objects, but they have had success. Um, And this is basically, so you're using sound to levitate objects. And this sounds very much like, albeit in sort of a, you know, passed down through the generations by word-of-mouth scenario that the ancients were talking about when they talked about, you know, the, the stones being lifted into the air to the sound of music and, and to sound. Um, and another classic example is how this could be weaponized, you know, the story, the famous story of the walls of Jericho. You know, they weren't kicked down, they, they, were, br- they were brought down to the sound mm. of a trumpet. You know, and again, this is like using acoustic technology as a weapon. Now, yeah, yeah. Now, whether or not this is true, one of the things I point out in the book, you know, whether that scenario is true, that is how they did it. As I point out in the book, the Pentagon in the 50s was particularly interested in the research of a man named Dr. Morris Jessup, who wrote a book called The Case for the UFO, which postulated this very theory of levitation. And rather than ignore him or just throw the book out, the Navy actually secretly flew him out to D.C. and sort of grilled him for days all about his research and how this technology might work and whether or not you know there's a chance of developing it and weaponizing it basically so you know they took the theory very seriously that you know levitation was at the at the heart of the raising of these massive stones yeah, the
1: frequencies i think we we I mean, most of us know uh, can be very uh... Damaging, Mm -hmm. very dangerous, easily weaponized. The opera singer's voice shatters the glass, not too unlike. uh, Mm -hmm. uh, In fact, um, some of the declassified information that comes out of the Cold War tells us uh, that utilizing frequencies Mm -hmm. and uh, very specific frequency patterns, uh, the Soviets experimented on... uh, you know, bombarding our embassies with uh, Mm -hmm. frequencies that interrupted the optimal operation of the nervous system, producing all kinds of strange maladies. Mm -hmm. Let me ask this. Do you think that our government, the Pentagon, the British government, do you think they believe that there were ancient civilizations uh, and that they perhaps destroyed themselves?
0: Yeah, I think there are people in government who believe that. There's no doubt about that. I think the big question is whether to what extent, you know, they can prove it or not. You know, it's kind of like with the best will in the world, you know, even from the government's perspective, when you're dealing with stories that may date back like the Mahabharata, you know, tens of thousands of years, and somewhere has been obliterated, and all you've got are sort of, you know, ancient tablets or manuscripts and parchments, it becomes difficult to actually prove it. So there's there's no doubt, though, you know, that because of the the paths that they were looking at and and trying to determine things like you know the levitation angle or what was on Mount Ararat, etc. There's no doubt that there were people who were driven by that belief. Whether they actually sort of vindicated or proved it, you know, that, that's that's a different matter, I think.
1: You know, and uh, there have been, of course, all kinds of uh, black ops, if you will. Yeah dealing with everything from what you're talking about you know this the the ancient mm-hmm. uh, cults etc to you know brainwashing uh which is something I spend a little more time on but let me ask you this have you have you come across in your work uh devil's breath uh, scopolamine
0: um no I haven't no
1: okay well That's a drug that uh, is available uh, in South America that apparently is it hasn't been in the States for a long time, but apparently it's now coming into the States. And it's, you know, they call it devil's breath because you give a person this drug and it basically suspends their critical ability to resist. And the end result of that is, you is know, it's, it's thought of as a willpower drug. But that's a whole nother subject. We'll talk about that another time. Tell me this then, Nick. Can you explain what NASA and other agencies of government have learned about uh, the connection between uh, ancient Egypt and the face on Mars?
0: Mm. Yeah, this is, this is an area that, you know, sort of has profound implications, um, I guess, for us as a species and for our history. I mean, I'm sure all of your listeners will have heard of the so-called face on Mars. It's sort of this enigmatic, almost sphinx-like face that stares up from an area of Mars called Cydonia. And, you know, if you see it, it does look like the Egyptian Sphinx. But whereas the Sphinx points outwards, you know, the face on Mars points upwards. Um, More intriguing is that in the same area, Sidonia, NASA photographs show what look eerily like um, pyramid type structures. And, of course, this sort of connection between having a Sphinx type face and pyramids nearby on Mars has inevitably given rise to the theory that, you know, could there be a tie-in between some ancient indigenous Martian race that maybe destroyed itself again, or possibly something happened to the planet itself where its atmosphere degraded, and some of the original Martian civilization, if you like, fled to Earth and and kick-started some of our human civilizations. Now, it's a controversial theory, certainly, but one of the Undeniable fact is that many ancient cultures had a fascination with Mars, with planet Mars. You know, they would celebrate it, you know, in terms of um, uh, cave paint drawings, you know, even, uh, to example, for example, sort of building structures that, you know, sort of paid homage to Mars and also to Venus. Um, and so, in other words, it suggested that somewhere in the ancient past, you know, there was a, something profound about Mars that influenced the people of that era. And it's also a fact that many of these early cultures that built pyramid-type structures, kind of like the ones that we do see on these NASA pictures, suddenly appeared out of nowhere as if something really had given them a kickstart. You know, we didn't see, like we do in other countries, like a slow progression from horse and carts and the wheel, you know, to the Industrial Age, to, you know, the jet engines and the atomic age and spacecraft. It was like they went from hunter-gatherers to move in 80-ton stones, you know, almost overnight, as if somebody mm-hmm. had helped them. Now, what's interesting is that over the years, a number of agencies have taken an interest in the, the face on Mars, not just NASA. And there are also indications that possibly somebody in government knew about the face on Mars long before NASA supposedly found it or photographed it first in 1976. That's when it was officially discovered, so to speak, mm-hmm. but... Back in the 1950s, a number of sci-fi authors, all interestingly enough who had various ties to US intelligence, uh, which as strange as it sounds, began writing novels and comic books all about large faces on Mars and pyramids. Um, Jack Kirby, who was a famous comic book artist who did a lot of the so-called superhero comics of the 60s, he actually wrote a comic book called The Face on Mars in the late 1950s, which details the story of the team of U.S. astronauts who go to Mars and find this huge carved face on the planet. And Kirby, interestingly enough, had a number of ties with the CIA and various agencies over the years. And there's a theory that perhaps at some point in the 50s, there was a, a moment where certain people in government wanted to get the truth out, and they did it first through sort of a medium of entertainment to see how people would be would respond to it but then it was reportedly shut down by another faction of the government that that didn't want the truth to come out and you know who wanted to relegate it all to oh well it's just rocks and shadows you know
1: how, how do you think they would have obtained the information in the first place nick
0: well that's that's the big question you know if they did my And it is speculation. My speculation would be that it would come from interpreting and deciphering ancient manuscripts and texts and things like this, you know, that possibly were sort of retrieved, liberated, purloined or whatever, kind of like this ancient Dead Sea Scroll that supposedly the CIA got in '47 that dealt with things like um, prophecy and foretelling the future and things like that. I suspect that it would have to come from ancient knowledge. You know, I don't think... We were flying spacecraft to Mars in the 50s that saw the face on Mars. But possibly the idea of having archaic knowledge, secret knowledge and esoteric knowledge and having located it and deciphered it, I think that's probably a more probable scenario.
1: Well, While we're on that, you know, you recount how the FBI clandestinely uh, investigated uh, claims of UFO's uh, researcher and witness, George Van Tassel. Uh, you know, Flesh that story out, will you?
0: Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, you know, when you think of ancient astronauts, everybody tends to think <clears throat> more recent years, Zechariah Sitchin, and then in the 60s and 70s, uh, Eric Von Daniken. But George Van Tassel was someone who was talking about ancient astronauts back in the 50s at the same time as Maurice Jessup, who... Um, postulated on the Egyptian pyramids being moved by levitation. But um, George Van Tassel, I got hold of his FBI file, which is like 400 pages long and spans about 15 years. And there's quite a bit in there about how the government was deeply interested in his beliefs that, interestingly enough, Noah's Ark was some sort of spacecraft, um, like a space ark populated by animals that aliens had sort of taken on board, almost like a cosmic zoo. He also came to believe, uh, Van Tassel, that the story of Adam and Eve, he believed that it was, Adam and Eve were like a race of extraterrestrials, um, or two races of extraterrestrials, not sort of one literal man and one literal woman. Um, he also believed that many sort of biblical, biblical accounts, like the Star of Bethlehem and things like that, were evidence of UFO activity. And he lectured on this quite extensively in the 50s and 60s, and um as a result, you know got watched by um, sort of u s officialdom, and this went on for a long, long time to the point where it becomes very clear that the reason why he was being watched specifically did relate to the fact that he was kind of rewriting, rewriting excuse me ancient religious texts, and um, there was a lot of concern about how that would influence people in the general public in the u s at that particular time, and it, it demonstrates you know he 's very much ahead of his time as well in terms of you know, people like von Daniken and and Sitchin, you know, coming decades later after him.
1: Right. You know, I think one, obviously one of the concerns is if you were to discover that uh, life was seeded by some extraterrestrial, your Adam and Eve story isn't the biblical uh, recount as yeah. most Christians believe, or or you can take any of the creation epics, it would it would dissolve their credibility, and that could give rise to. Um, you know, a good deal of confusion. Yeah. At the same time, mm-hmm. it might also neutralize some of the tactics that uh, government has laid in place for how they might uh, control the masses by playing towards those very scripts. In, in about one minute, can you uh, fill us in on how, why the government might want to take advantage of uh, of your belief in Christianity? I'm thinking particularly of Castro.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, this is an interesting story about how in the early 1960s, this is a verifiable story where I got the files again through the Freedom of Information Act, that the CIA developed this fantastic plan to sort of fake uh, second coming, where the plan was, bear in mind this is the early 60s, so the technology was fairly rudimentary then, but the plan was to try and basically um, sort of project imagery of Jesus onto low-lying clouds over Cuba And have aircraft with their engines muffled flying inside the clouds, broadcasting messages to the Cuban people saying, you know, renounce Fidel Castro, Jesus is on our side. So in other words, it was like utilizing religion and creating a fake second return to try and overthrow, you know, a foreign leader. And, you know, and when that ties in today, we hear things about Project Bluebeam and people say, well, that's just not possible. You know, that's just too far out. But we actually find that the government had tried to do something very similar, albeit with more rudimentary technology, 50 years earlier.
1: We're, we're out of time, Nick. Listen, all of you out there, the book is The Pyramids and the Pentagon. It is a great read. There, We could spend hours on this. We will be bringing Nick back to discuss more. Uh, especially what the National Security Agency and crop circles in the 2012 into the world controversy is all about. You get the book. That's it. We've come to the end of another hour of provocative enlightenment. I want to thank our guest and all of you for joining us. And a special thank you uh, and a shout out to our Hay House radio crew that does everything for us behind the scenes and makes it all so easy every week. All right, if you have comments on the show, do let us know. And until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters.